portion of scripture we have before us is incredibly radical. It was radical for those who heard it first as Peter wrote to this church in the first century. In fact, it was radical when these words were read in the medieval church. It was radical when these words were read in the post-medieval Renaissance church and these words are radical for us here this afternoon in this so-called modern era. Because what they do is they reshape and reorder us with a liberating truth. A liberating truth about what it is that God is doing in our lives, how God uses us and the role of the church for us. Because here and in 1 Peter chapter 1 from uh, chapter 2 verse 4, we have I think, the high point of Peter's argument, Peter's encouragement to these Christians under pressure, these Christians scattered throughout the portions of Asia Minor, these five regions of what we would know as modern-day Turkey, because we've seen over the last six or seven weeks that Peter has been redefining the world for these Christians. He's redefined their future. He said that the future isn't uncertain, They have a sure hope based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter, a couple of weeks ago, redefined the nature of family, that these Christians have been brought into the family of God with a loving father. And last week, Ben helped us to see that if they are part of this family, then they are to express love to one another. You'll notice uh, there back in chapter 2, Peter's encouragement to his readers there not to uh, sin in the nature of the way that they live there in chapter 2, verse 1. Can someone read chapter 2, verse 1 for us? I don't have it with me. Okay, therefore rid yourself of all malice, deceit, envy. You know, the direction of these comments is not to the outside world but to the church. This is how Peter is encouraging these Christians to behave firstly to one another. As the letter progresses we'll see how they behave to the outsider. But these words there in verse 1 of chapter 2 are directed for the context of the church. And here today, Peter is going to help us understand the nature of this church. Because he says there in chapter 2, verse 5, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. What is Peter saying? He's saying you're a brick. Sorry, that's not particularly flattering, especially if you're a lady. Um, You might want to think of yourself as a you know, a blossoming rose. That might be uh, a way in which you want to think of yourself, but that's not how Peter thinks of us as Christian people. He thinks of us as bricks, stones, masonry, blocks. Sydney has the auspicious privilege of having the worst of one of the greatest architects' buildings in the 21st century, Frank Geary. And we've got a couple of photos of Uh, the UTS Business School, the Dr. Cha-Chak Wing. Has anyone seen this uh, down there in Broadway? 
I don't know what you think. Do you like it? Weird? Do you think it's weird? Yeah. Do you think it's beautiful? Yeah, some people think it's beautiful. Some people think it's weird. Anyone in between? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to go to the next slide, you'll see that um, the building with its curved facade is made up of not steel or glass, substantially, but of bricks, little bricks, normal bricks, millions of these bricks that make up this building. In fact, we had to import specialist bricklayers because Aussie bricklayers know how to do a straight line, but we're not too good about doing uh, curved lines. Uh, it's, I don't think it's the greatest of Frank Geary's buildings. There's far more beautiful ones in Bilbao in Spain, for example. Um, some of you might have been to that. But it is a Frank Geary building, which is more than Melbourne's got because they have no Frank Geary buildings. <laughs> but you can imagine those bricks, those millions of bricks even as a pile. They're not, that's not their purpose. And when Peter addresses us as Christian people, if that is indeed what we are, he says we're a brick because our purpose in life does not lie in our separation, our isolation, or our distance from other bricks. Our purpose in life is to be joined together as a whole, is to come together in this kind of edifice, a beautiful edifice, this being, in Peter's mind, the church. Because the beauty of the brick is found in its goal. The usefulness of the brick is found in its goal. We use uh, bricks to keep the doors and the gates open sometimes, but that's not why they were built. The purpose of the brick is as it's collected with others, not just as a pile, but as these bricks are collected with others, with order, intent, and we'll see this afternoon with divine creativity. You can take that down, thanks. Um, Mandy. It's important to note there in verse 4 that there are two aspects of Peter's understanding of who we are. We're living stones, Peter says. There's a reality for which each and every stone for that building, so that Frank Geary building, is necessary. Every stone, every brick, sorry, is necessary. And that building is made up of a collection of individual bricks. And so Peter appreciates that the, this beauty of this larger edifice and building is actually made up of individuals. Now this was a radical idea in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the context for which this letter was written in, the concept of the individual each person being significant and important wasn't present. In fact, what was important in the ancient world was not each person, but each person was subsumed under a category other than person, usually that of family or clan or state. And so those who weren't Christian organised themselves in their religion primarily around their family, and the worship of their family, the, the, the ancestors that went before them, they would keep a, a fire 
within their homes and that fire would represent their devotion to the ancestors that had passed. And if that fire was to go out, it would be dishonourable. It, it would bring dishonour to the family. And so the family was the unit for which uh, religion and society organised itself around. It wasn't as if people had this concept of you being saved. No. In ancient religion, it was about the honour for the family. And so when Peter says that you are living stones, each one of you individually are living stones, he's recognising that this building that God is at work in building is made up of individuals. And so this is radical for the ancient world. But this is also radical for our modern world. Because not only does Peter preserve the dignity and worth of every individual person, every brick, but Peter also appreciates that each and every brick contributes to this greater, larger building. And this is a challenge for us in the modern era. Because for us as modern people, we have a level of suspicion when it comes to something and some organisation beyond us. Um, we're seeing royal commissions. And what are they looking at? They're not looking at individuals. They're looking at collections of people, corporations, organisations. We live in an era that has a level of suspicion when it comes to an organisation. Uh, the Oxford historian Larry Sinendorf-Toff um, helpfully outlines this in his book. And what he does is he traces the origin of where we have got to in our world today from the roots of Christianity. And he says this, we've got to this place in our society where we're suspicious of organisations. Where we see, he says, the individual as the victim of social pressures and heroism as resistance to such pressures. Social institutions are presented as a threat to the self. See how we today think of an institution? It's a threat. Because institutions take away our freedom. But here what Peter is saying is just as radical for us in the modern world as it was for those in the ancient world. Because Peter is saying you are being built into an institution, an organisation. It's not simply an institution or an organisation. Peter is saying that if you have come to the Lord Jesus, if you've come to him, if you've trusted in him, you are now being built in and collected together in this building, in this new temple called the church. Because deeply embedded in the history of Israel was this conviction that God had promised a kingdom. And there was a tangible reminder of God's promise of this kingdom if you lived in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was not just the capital city as Canberra is the capital city. It wasn't just the most populous city for the Jewish person. No, the city of Jerusalem was a saving city where the temple stood and reminded the people of God's protection and provision and his care for his people. That was the statement that the temple made for the people of Jerusalem. 
My friends in Hobart, they speak in somewhat mystical terms about Mount Wellington. I don't know if you've been to Hobart, but Mount Wellington sits above Hobart. And, um, it, you know, it's kind of handy because it's this point of reference. Wherever you are pretty well in Hobart, you can see Mount Wellington. But they, are, they, they speak about it as a, as a point of reference, but also it has this, um, this mystical quality where it's kind of like this source of stability uh, across their lives. You know, their lives are cast by the shadow of the mountain, Mount Wellington. Well, this was uh, the reality, not in mystical terms, but in real terms for the ancient Jew living in Uh, living in Israel, living in Jerusalem. Because there was another mountain, a bit actually uh, not as high as Mount Wellington even, Mount Zion, where the temple was. And there that temple uh, was a place of relationship, of encounter with God, yes. But it was more than that. It was a symbol of national security. He was God's protection. It was a symbol of national identity. This is who we are as a people. And it was a symbol of law and order. This is how we're to live under the law that is given by God. And so the temple wasn't just a symbol. It was a concrete reality guaranteeing God's care of his people. And then 2,000 years ago, we've got this young peasant preacher who comes along and commits this unpardonable sin of both towering arrogance that you can see would, well, would threaten the social harmony of the people of Israel. Because these promises that God had made in the Old Testament, these promises about Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, this peasant preacher applies them not to the nation of Israel, not to this rocky outcrop, not to this temple building, but he implies all these promises to himself. To himself. Jesus says in John chapter 2 to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, that is that one on Zion, and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. See what Jesus is doing? He's collecting and redefining these promises given to Israel within himself. And this is in Peter's mind as he comes to write this section of 1 Peter. The one who Jesus called the rock that he was to build his church on says that Jesus is, well, Jesus is this stone. And he's not just any kind of stone. There in verse 4 of chapter 2, he's an animated stone. He's the one whose body is the new temple. And Peter is going to build on this as he writes to these Christians in Asia Minor. Why would Peter describe Christ Jesus as a stone? I mean, again, it's not like a, a precious sparkling diamond could have gone for that. He doesn't. He goes for a stone. Why? Well, I think uh, really for four reasons. Firstly, it's because there's this whole weight of Old Testament prophecy, and Peter picks up even just some some of those prophecies in this section there in verses 4 to 10. 
But additionally, stones are, well, they're stable. They don't tend to wear uh, in the weather. They're stable. And in fact, God in the Psalms describes himself as a rock and a refuge. You can hide in a rock. uh, Stones are also common. You can find them anywhere in any geography or any level of geology. They're also useful. They're useful for building. And this is really what Peter picks up because God is at work as he builds He's building this new superstructure, this new building. But he's building it with the one who has been rejected. Because if you've come to Jesus, you, well, you haven't backed a winner. Have a look there in verse 4. Jesus has been rejected by men. Now, I know it's footy finals season, and there's often one in a family whose support for their football team is, shall we say, variable, given given the conditions or the performance of whatever team might be doing particularly well that year. Now, I have one member of my family, a child who will remain nameless, who is willing to either back the Swans or the Giants on the basis not of their performance, but on the basis of how much merchandise she'll get from either the swans or the giants. See, if you've come to Jesus, you haven't backed a winner. You've actually backed someone who's been rejected by this world. And as God builds, we're going to see he builds on the rejected one, the one for which the world has discarded, the one for which the world has overlooked. Indeed, we'll see next week the one for which the world has tripped over. You've come to the rejected one. There's a famous Easter sermon given by an English preacher and he titled his sermon about the cross. His title was this, which uh, only an Englishman could write a title this long. His Easter sermon title was Given Half a Chance, Man's First Inclination When He Meets God Face to Face Is to Kill Him. You've come to the rejected one. You've come to the one that the world has rejected. But Peter is saying, you've also come to the one that God has chosen. You see that in verse 4, because Jesus is God's ultimate decision. The world may have rejected him 2,000 years ago, but before the beginning of time, God chose the Lord Jesus. And in that, God shows his twin priorities. He shows the love that he has for his son in choosing him. And he also shows the mercy that he has for his people. You see, we are, we are bombarded by so many choices in our life. What super fun do you have? How's it going? You know there's a better one out there? Have you checked recently? Have you read the terms and conditions? What job should you take? Is there a better job out there? What school is best for your kids or perhaps your grandkids? How should you look after them? How? There are so many decisions that we are bombarded with. But there is one decision that God has made. There is one decision that God has made that echoes throughout eternity. He has chosen his son, rejected by man, but chosen by him. And out of all the decisions that we might 
have to make here is the decision that we need to come to grips with. Do we agree with God's decision? Do we know the Lord Jesus as the one who might be rejected by the world, but the one who is precious and accepted by us? God has chosen him. God is at work in building this new superstructure, this new spiritual building. And remarkably, we are part of that. Have a look at verse 5. Because they're just in two words, I I think could be two of the most remarkable words in the New Testament. There in verse 5, just off the back of what God is doing in his son, his eternal love son as his living stone, you, verse 5, also are like living stones. Just as Jesus is God's living stone, remarkably, Peter describes Christian people with the same description. The status of a Christian depends upon the status of Christ, for we are joined with this one who is rejected, but accepted by God. And here what Peter is doing, and I think what he's doing really um, up until verse 10 He he wants to show these Christian people what privilege they have. He wants to show them just how remarkable it is because it didn't feel like that for those early Christians. It didn't feel like they were part of some wonderful spiritual reality. Often we have this this view that um, in the ancient world, in the early church, everything would have been amazing But that is not, I don't think, the experience of these early Christians. And here what Peter is doing is he's he's helping them understand just what they are sitting on, just what they are part of, because it might have looked a bit ordinary. It might have looked a bit weak. Indeed, what God is doing in us might look a bit ordinary in in the world's eyes. It might look a bit weak. But we need to be reminded about what God is doing because we are being told here that if we've come to the Lord Jesus, if we haven't rejected him, if he is precious to us, then all these promises of God throughout the Old Testament that are applied to Jesus ridiculously, crazily, are now applied to us. We now are part of this new temple. We now are part of this new priesthood. We'll explore that more next week. And we now are part of this sacrificial system. These promises are bundled up and applied not only to Christ, but remarkably to you and to me. There's been this shift from this shadow land of promise in the Old Testament. And what looked very real, if you were in the ancient world and you looked up there on the mountain was the temple in spectacular beauty, that would have looked very real. But to these little churches under the threat of the Roman Empire, They looked and perhaps felt so vulnerable, weak and small. They needed to be reminded, as we do, of what God is doing. Just because the Lord Jesus was rejected, he's precious to God, just as they are rejected. They are precious to God, and just as we are often rejected, we too are precious to God. Because the security, honour and shape of The church is given by its foundation. Have a look there in verse 6. 
For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here we are told what kind of stone. It's not, it's not a pebble. Uh, I have one son who will actually remain nameless, who just collects rocks. We have all these rocks uh, in his bedroom, um, out the back, in the garage. He just he sees rocks and just grabs them. But this is not ordinary, some ordinary rock that Peter is speaking of here. No, he's speaking of a cornerstone, a foundation stone. And a foundation stone is, was usually the largest stone and it was laid first and it was crucial because the whole shape of the building was determined by the orientation and the shape of this foundation stone. And Peter quotes from the Old Testament there in verse 6. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. As he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. This is God speaking. This is God speaking to his people. Because I, wanna, I want you to cast your mind 700 years back before Jesus was born. God's people are in the promised land, which you think would be fantastic, but everything is not good because there's a rising superpower to the north, the Assyrians. And this superpower are threatening to sweep down from the north and wipe Israel out. So what should Israel do under the threat of the Assyrians? What should they do? They should, they should trust in God, as God has told them. As God has promised, he will protect them, but they don't. What do they do? They go to the Egyptians. Now, even my kindergarten class know that a number of kids are in my kindergarten class. It, that going to the Egyptians is a very, very dopey thing to do, given that the Egyptians had them as slaves, and God had rescued them from the Egyptians. They try to form an alliance with Egypt against Syria. And so in Isaiah chapter 28, God comments on their little political alliance. And he says, it's like making a pact or a covenant or an alliance with death. And Israel will be punished and Israel will be nearly wiped out. But amidst the judgment of Israel, God has started to do something in Israel. What has he started to do? Verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, he's, he's laid. He's laid a foundation stone, a cornerstone, a cornerstone in this area of Zion, on this mountain. He's laid this cornerstone. And I think here it's a reminder for these Christians, as Peter writes them, just as superpowers encircled and threatened God's people of old. But God was faithful to those who were faithful. Now too, the superpower of the day, Rome, hasn't just encircled. They live within its walls. And here, I think Peter is wanting to encourage these Christians to trust in God. 
I think also Peter is saying that Jesus is the one who ultimately has done this. That he is both this secure foundation and he is also the model. See, because the church takes its alignment from the cornerstone. The way the cornerstone is set, the shape of that cornerstone determines the whole building. And so how do you build this building? Well, you have to keep looking back to this cornerstone. You need to keep looking forward, but you need to keep looking back to this cornerstone. See, Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. Jesus is also the cornerstone of our church. And we need to base our life and we need to base our church upon him because he will set the course for our life. He will project out the lines for our life together as a church. The imagery of this cornerstone here, I think, emphasises the centrality of Jesus in the life of the church, that Christ is the principal stone from which this whole building is built. You see, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We're not the church after Jesus. We're not the church like, only like Jesus. No, we're the church of Jesus Christ, inseparable with him, based in him, being given life from him. And when we do that, we are an unshakable reality. And so let me close with this. We need, as a church, most fundamentally... To come to him. We need to come to him. Just as in the Psalms, they call on the people to come to the temple to encounter God and to worship him. Peter calls in verse 4, Peter calls on people to come to him as you come to him. And not just coming to him once, but as you come to him, continually coming to him. Not to come to him and go when things get hard, but to keep on coming to him, to keep trusting in him, verse 6, to believe in him, in verse 7. Not simply that he existed, but to put all your confidence, to build your whole life direction from him as you come to him. Because as you come to him, you're joined in what God is doing. We're just bricks. And bricks by themselves aren't particularly useful. But when we come to him, we're collected by the work of the Holy Spirit in this community of God's people, around the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus. Often people wonder if they fit in a church. I worked for a builder when I was at university and I worked for a bricklayer. And... Um, when we were working for this bricklayer, Tony Brockman was his name. He was not a sophisticated man, but to watch him build a stone wall, that was poetry. Because you'd have all these stones laid out, and there I was handing them to him, and he'd tell me which one to bring, and I'd bring it here, and I didn't know how things would go together. But bit by bit, brick, um, uh, stone by stone, odd-looking shapes in the hands of a master mason a beautiful straight wall is produced. And this is the reality for us. Different shapes, different people. In the hands of a master mason, by ourselves, we're just a rock. By ourselves, we're just a brick to hold open a gate. But when the Lord Jesus grabs us, when the Holy Spirit binds us, we're built into this beautiful temple of the Lord Jesus, built by him, 
with him as our cornerstone. So we need to come. We need to come to the Lord Jesus. And when we come to him, something wonderful happens. We come to him individually. We come to him personally. But we are together built corporately. We are together built as a church. Not just a pile of bricks, but we are built into this building, into this temple, with divine order, with divine intent, and with divine creativity. May we come to him and know his work in building us together as a church. Amen. I'm going to pray. I'm going to continue.